we have been talking about this idea of renewal, not because it is an interesting topic or perhaps a different topic or maybe even a little bit of a trendy topic coming out of a season of the pandemic, but it is because it is a necessary topic for the people of God. As we're talking about renewal, the emphasis is not so much what we do, but as it is who we are. It's not so much our schedules being filled as it is how close we walk with our God. And that happens in a variety of ways. And so this sermon series has explored many of those facets by which renewal can take place. And we're after supernatural, long-lasting renewal that's transformative rather than just temporary and seasonal. And so today we come to this point where it's the second to last sermon in this series. And I want to take us to where even as we sang the words that we just sang, in Christ alone, who can pluck us from his hand, that the mentality that we're approaching that song is not just only me and God, me and God, me and God, but to recognize that the biblical promises that are even made clear through those lyrics actually is spoken to the church. It's spoken to a people. It wasn't intended to speak to you personally and you personally alone. In Christ alone, yes, but not for you alone. In Christ alone forever, but that is because his bride is the church. And so please join me in a word of prayer as we go into God's word today and look at John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning that we could gather here We thank you, Lord, that even as we are gathered, whether we are here in person or our hearts are attuned to you as we're watching this and participating online, Father, that it is we who are gathered. God, we thank you, Lord, in the midst of everything that's happening around us, that there is a we that you are calling out. And we want to also praise you that in the midst of everything that we are going through in the beginning of a school year, in the midst of a pandemic, as we're seeing all kinds of conflicts around the world. Father, it is a we that the Holy Spirit is preserving. And so God, as we humbly come before you today, desiring renewal because you have been preparing and teaching and leading us in this way as a church, a renewal that is anchored in you. The evidence is itself from the inside out in transformation and joy is not also something that is kept to ourselves, but it is something that is meant to be communally experienced. It is meant to be a we that has and is able to be renewed. So we pray, Father, that as we come before you today, God, that we would be cognizant and reflective of the we's that are important in our lives. Where do we find identity? Where are we loved and are able to love? Where do we know and are able to experience a sense of belonging? And where do we look to to meet with you? Father, may this idea of we be what allows you, God, to then to work in us today. 
individually and also as a whole. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want us to be able to read this morning's scripture together. So please go ahead and listen. It'll be from John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. I'll go ahead and read it for us. But even in the reading aloud of God's word, I want this to be a shared experience, that you're hearing this together. These are Jesus' words. This is his prayer, and I'll be reading it from the ESV, starting from verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. We're cutting across chapter 17 here to the end of a prayer that Jesus is offering. And it's helpful to be able to know who he is talking to. Right away in verse 20, he makes it clear that this prayer is being offered for all those who will believe in him through their word. Who is they? These 11 that are gathered with Jesus at this time. This is where we're at right now. They are in the upper room. This is familiarly called the upper room discourse. And it's between the Last Supper and also the Garden of Gethsemane. And what Jesus is doing is he's preparing his disciples, then eventually minus Judas throughout this course of chapters 13 to 17, for how they can go beyond this shared experience that they've had for the last three and a half years. Why? Because Jesus is about to go. Jesus is about to be crucified the next day. Jesus is about to leave them. Jesus is about to depart. This band of 12 disciples have been following Jesus through thick and thin, through crowds and through individual conversations. And after three and a half years, Jesus reveals that he will leave. And he's been doing this, but now it is abundantly clear that it is not just ahead, but it is immediate. Jesus will leave very soon. He will be arrested shortly. He will be with them no more in the way that they have experienced and known and have become familiar with. Jesus will leave. And their hearts rightfully will become and are growing in being troubled. You would be too. You would be troubled as well. So this is the motivation that Jesus had in this entire breadth of teaching and examples and illustrations that he gives. In chapter 14, verse 18, he says this, I will not leave you as orphans. 
This is why he's doing what he is doing, because he has that relationship with them. So what did you find happening in chapters 13 to 17? Fairly quickly, you found that he sets this example through his hands and through his humility and through his deeds of washing their feet so offensive to the culture of a master humbling himself down to this level that Peter said, no, you cannot do this. But then the eyes opened when Jesus said, unless you let me do this, you're not going to understand why I came in fullness. And so then Jesus says, just dunk me then. He goes on after dismissing and removing Judas to then remind them that, yes, he will return, but don't worry, he will make a way for them, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he will come back to take them back to this dwelling that he is preparing for them. He doesn't leave them as orphans because he is going to send a comforter, the Holy Spirit, the helper, who will continue to remind them of everything that he has taught them to refresh in their hearts of all that they had experienced and seen. But on the other side of the cross, this Holy Spirit is going to build the church. And this Holy Spirit is going to point to the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And that will be the monument that the Holy Spirit will call them to and for all of us forever until Jesus returns. That the death and resurrection of Jesus is the turning point, is the apex, is the mountaintop of God's redemption history. The Holy Spirit will come. You will not be orphans. You will not be alone. So stay with me, he says. I am the vine, you are the branches. Don't go anywhere. You need me. The Holy Spirit needs to fill you. The Holy Spirit desires to be with you when he comes. So by all means, abide, be near, walk closely to be attached, be annoyingly immediate to me because you need me and because the Holy Spirit works through this connection that I want to build in this church that is my bride. And then he begins to pray starting in chapter 17. The first five verses of this chapter, he's praying for himself. He's asking God to be glorified in him and his ministry and his impending death and resurrection, that God may be glorified through the glory that Jesus is about to exhibit in this earth-shattering series of events. That Jesus will fulfill this mission that he received from God and to give eternal life to all those who would believe. He goes on, starting from verse 6 all the way through 19, then to pray for these 11, this faithful band of brothers that were called out of the most random of circumstances and responded to a simple idea of follow me, leave everything behind, trust me, and I will lead you to where God wants you to be. He prays for them. He prays for them to persevere. He prays for them to finish their journey, and he prays for them to do what God has also set them apart to do. Because if it wasn't for those 11, 
you wouldn't have today's section. If those 11 did not finish and glorify God with their ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit in proclaiming the message of the gospel, then there is no verses 20 to 26. And so he prays for them. And that's where we find ourselves then now. He's praying for those that will come after the 12, and specifically these 11, this church that was birthed then on Pentecost, that then starting from 3,000 with this deliriously insane message of the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth has then gone on over the millennia to shape and change and turn the world. Not perfectly, not without sin, not without mistakes, but in the power of the Holy Spirit as they were sent forth and as they continue to go and make disciples of all nations. So that's us. That includes us. We are the benefactors or beneficiaries of that faithfulness in God's plan. Let's not forget that somebody in some way shared the gospel with you. And for many of us, the gospel came in and through us for years, and it hit nothing. For many of us, the gospel came with broken words and imperfect illustrations. For many of us, the gospel came in the midst of brokenness and even sins in the lives of the messengers. For many of us, the gospel came in the midst of trial and tribulation, making us doubt its validity and it's also its trustworthiness. But if you are a disciple of Jesus today, and if you are pursuing God and growing as a disciple maker, it's because we are part of this group in verses 20 to 26. And that you have repented and put your faith in Christ. And for those of you who may be here for the very first time, or maybe are going to be hearing the gospel with open ears and soft hearts for the first time as the Holy Spirit is working in you, this is why we gather. This is why we're here to talk about Jesus. And what a privilege it is to look back all the way to the life of Jesus, even as then he prays for us 2,000 years later. Embrace this prayer for you if you are a Christian, but please listen to this prayer if you are not because this is where God's people want to be, and this is where we are called to be, and this is the type of unity and love that is supposed to be representative and oozing out of the community of God. It is a perfect unity, that imperfect beings like us can look to and with God's help strive for. Now, a lot of our renewal series actually has been talking about what the Israelites were doing as they were wandering in the desert and the intercessory and mediating presence and leadership of Moses and, and how their relationship with God was worked out through failure and repentance and judgment and everything else. But Moses was there, and there was a lot of attention being paid on him. But think about this. Why did Moses, especially towards the end with Deuteronomy, why was he saying the things that he was saying? 
Why did he remind them of the law? Why did he tell them to say all of these things and live it out wherever it is that you go and you're rising and you're lying down and you're coming and you're going? Remind God's people that God is one. He is alone, the God. He is the greatest. Do not forsake him. Do not walk away from him. Why? Well, it's because he wasn't going to go into the promised land. But this generation will. With that, we find ourselves in a very similar situation, don't we? We find then these 11 disciples who are about to lose Jesus in a way that they probably have no clue how it's going to impact them, but they know bad times are coming. Scary times are coming. Unpredictable things are on the horizon. They will be challenged. Life will not be the same. But yet, they can see that there's a plan of God that is leading them forward to be the people of God that will proclaim the Messiah of God, whom they have followed for the last three and a half years. So what can Jesus do to prepare them? What can Jesus say to encourage them? How can Jesus pray to empower them? That's where we find ourselves at this moment. Perhaps Jesus just wants them to be renewed. He wants them to experience renewal as well. And so he speaks and prays these things for them. You know, verse 21 is actually a really wonderful summary of his prayer. The way that the rest of the verses go touches on different aspects of the two parts of this prayer. And so we'll go ahead and look at that in a moment. But in verse 21, you find the prayer in its two sections very, very simply. That they, these disciples in the future, like us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. That's part one. Part two, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the focal point then of this prayer is that as the Father and the Son are united, as the Father and the Son are one, all of you people who profess faith in Christ, he wants us to be one. And we'll quantify that and break that out a little bit more as to who us is, what that looks like, what does it mean to be one. But that's the prayer, that God's people will be united, they'd be one. And just by the reference to the Father and the Son, you can recognize a few things. One, that this unity is certainly one of diversity. It is not one of uniformity, because the Father is not the Son. See, when you go back to many of these seminal Christian doctrines, like the Trinity, the reason why this idea is a Christian idea is because the Scriptures reveal to us that the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they're all God, but they are not each other. And so how do you explain that? Well, you let the Bible explain itself, but the idea Christians have given to that is that it's the Trinity, that the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit, but each one is God. And so this unity of the Father and the Son is not one of uniformity, because the Father is not the Son. Now the Father is in the Son, doing the work. The Father is preparing for the Son. The Father sent the Son, and the Son is in obedience to the Father. The Son is fulfilling His will. The Son is an agent of the Father in creating and in saving. 
but the Father is not the Son. So unity is more than just everyone being the same. It is unity that is anchored in the diversity of the Godhead. Now then this unity, you might think, well, is that even possible? Well, the Father and the Son, yes, because they are united together perfectly, as it says in verse 23. So this is then a supernatural unity. It is a unity that you cannot achieve by our efforts. It is supernatural, and that's why God is God. But interestingly enough, there is a component that is repeated over and over in this prayer, especially that we can relate to. This unity is one that is relational in expression. This unity is even able to be made clear by Jesus in verse 24 when he says, be with me, be near me, be around me, be in connection with me, be in relationship with me, and that's the beginnings of approaching that unity. There's a depth of love. There's a depth of experience. There's a depth of something that intersects with this world that then we human beings can understand when there is unity. That even though we cannot be perfectly united and we cannot be supernatural as the Godhead in the same way, that we're able to observe and experience unity particularly through love. There's all kinds of things that Jesus could have said instead of the word love. We know that Jesus says just earlier in John that to love me is to obey my commandments. Sure, but in this prayer, he highlights not the obedience that might be seen as a task, but he highlights the love, which is the motivation. The motivation for unity is love. The obedience is how you do it. But the love is the motivation. You know, so Jesus, who right in the beginning of the Gospel of John, was declared to be with God and was God and is one with God, is calling his people, his future disciples, to pursue that kind of unity. One that is supernatural and one that can be experienced relationally. There's a reason for that. And that's the second part of that prayer. So that this world, which then you set apart, this will be a world of people that have not trusted in Jesus or not followers of Jesus, so that by your unity and love, that this world will believe that God has sent Jesus. That God has sent someone to save, someone to redeem, someone to rule, someone to reign. That they would believe the gospel and its good news. Why wouldn't we want people to believe that? It is in the gospel of John where we find that those who put their faith in Jesus will have abundant life. Those that put their faith in Jesus will be made holy by his word. Those who put their faith in Jesus will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not to then mention that unity and love that he just prayed for. Who doesn't want that today? The problem that we have is not a lack of desire for that, is the means by which we pursue it. 
God knows our hearts. He knows what we want. And he wants to give us the best. So I want us to look at a few ways in which then a community, which is the corporate we of God's people, are then able to be united together. And then through that, that would be the means and the application to renewal. How can we be united? Well, that's the means by which we can experience a renewed heart and life. In verse 22, he says this, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, what is God's glory? It's his presence. It's his radiance. It's his greatness. So big is our God that, as we recall from the stories of Moses going back and forth with him, he wanted God to be able to be in his face. He wants to see God, and God said, no, I'm too much for you. I will hide you in a hole, and I will go over you. God's glory and his presence is unique. It is special. It is amazing. A sinful person cannot see God's face and live. But what does the Gospel of John begin with? Right from the beginning, with that context, the Word became flesh, it says in chapter 1, verse 14, and dwelt among us. So God became a human being, someone that we could touch, see, smell, and be near, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we can't see God in the fullness of his glory face to face, but God sent his Son so that God can walk with us. Jesus, in his humble earthly ministry, in everything that he did and said and chose to do or not to do, embodied the glory of God. He is, after all, Emmanuel, God with us. So no longer is God only from afar, not only is God only in a cloud, not only is God a supernatural phenomenon in the burning bush, God is with people. It is a foretaste of what eternity is meant to be. This glory was always with Jesus. It says in verse 24 that Jesus had this glory even before the foundation of the world. And we're reminded again in the beginning of John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overwhelm him. Glory is Christ, and he is in the world. But then there's this connection again to our human experience in verse 26. I made known to them, that's Jesus speaking, your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. How does God manifest his glory? Through 
the love that he has for the son and through the, the love that the son had for his people. That is the manifestation of love. That is righteousness in action. An unperverted, pure love that is from God towards others. So this is the vision then that Jesus has casted for us in his prayer, that he wants us to be united in his love in the same way that he is united in love with his Father. And that is the reason why this is a perfect unity, because it is rooted in a perfect love. Now, that time will come in the future when Christ returns and everything is restored and remade into this kingdom forever. But until then, there is a community for which God's love is meant to not only be taught about and deposited in teaching, but is actually to be on display. And that community is the church. Let me read to you really quickly Colossians 1, starting from verse 15. It begins with this beautiful description of Jesus that sounds very similar to what I just read in John 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is why Christians believe that Jesus is God when such attributes are attributed to him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to all himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So how does the Son show his love? Through the church. Because he's the head, and the head feeds and nourishes the body. Okay? We find that the Holy Spirit is in there too, because in chapter 14, verses 25 to 26, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit builds the church, connects the parts. The Holy Spirit is the life that strengthens the branches as it is abiding in the vine. It is the glue. It is the membranes that holds together the body of Christ. It is the cement that allows the bricks to stick to each other in the temple of God. It is the one that points people and directs people to the flock of God. And the Holy Spirit is the one that reminds us that we are a household of faith, that we are a family, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that your spiritual family is your forever family. The Holy Spirit is who teaches, convicts, and reminds us of that So during this season, if you want renewal, I'm not saying join a perfect church. I'm not saying we have a perfect church, but there needs to be a priority of the local church. 
just to be in there so that you could be connected to the head so that you could be in the midst of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the midst of its members and in the midst of people that are coming to hear, that are being brought near to the people of God, seeking the presence of God with whatever it is that they bring to the table. Earlier this week, there was an article written by Brett McCracken that talks about the priority of the church. And I just want to share this one little quote that he shared. He said this, We plead, do not neglect the church. Prioritize it, commit to it, invest there, serve there, grow alongside real flesh and blood people. Embrace its unavoidably uncomfortable aspects. The deeper all of us step into the internet age, the more we, he's talking about his organization, are convinced a Christian is strongest when embedded within a healthy local church and driven by a love of and commitment to that church. So number one, renewal begins in the midst, as a part of, in the middle of the people of God. Number two, Renewal is experienced in the family of God, and that touches on the relationship between the Father and the Son, and also then this constant reference to love. Not so much what you do, but this idea of love. In this chapter, it is spoken of five times, this word love. Four times the Father loves the Son. One time the Father loved the world by sending the Son It's the motivation. You can see the closeness by which Jesus spoke to his father. You know, it's not very often that you could hear someone's prayer. Certainly, sure, there's corporate prayer. There's ways in which we pray in the midst of one another. But, I mean, this is a prayer in a time of desperation. Oftentimes, these kind of prayers, we pray alone. But in this prayer, you could see then through the veil, how close the Son is to the Father. How much love they had for each other. That yes, to obey is to demonstrate love, but it is not to earn love. Love drives obedience. Love drives what you would say in prayer. And he was driven by love as the Father is driven by love. So then how did he demonstrate this love to his disciples? He washed their feet. See, love is not just an emotion. Love is an action. And love is a persevering set of actions. And he demonstrated that. Not only to teach them something, so they have a great illustration. Oh, guess what Jesus did? No, they were shook by that. There's no way they could have had Jesus wash their feet and felt, oh yeah, this is normal. He did this to teach them. He did this to encourage them. But you know why he did this? He did this to love them. That's what love looks like. That's what it looks like when you're willing to get in there in someone else's life to calm their fears, to remind them of God's faithfulness, to call them to abide and to say, don't just do as I say, but Live the rest of your life as I'm showing you. That is love. It is not surprising then that in this same section, 
in verses 34 to 35 of 13, Jesus said this famous quote, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. All action-oriented, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, Jesus' desire is for them to be unified. Jesus' desire is for them to eventually be reunited forever after a time of separation in the kingdom to come. But right ahead of them is a very difficult season of despair and trial and uncertainty. So what did Jesus do? He showed them that he loved them. Not just talked about it, not just even prayed about it. He showed them that he loved them. You know, school year just started, and, um, you know, some of you have students in the home, and, you know, the older students, they tend to be more independent, or at least, uh, you know, they, they're going to do their own thing. But the younger students, that's where a lot of times when you're preparing for them, you know, uh, I don't know about you guys, but the first day of school when I was talking to my wife, you know, she shared about how weird it was to prepare for them to go back to school after a year and a half. What do they like for lunch? What should I pack for them? Are they worrying enough? Are they going to be okay? And it was this morning routine of all kinds of stuff that she was doing that I'm so glad that she did. But why? Is it just to be busy? No, it's because you love your children, and you want them to come back to you in one piece. You want them to be fed when they're in school, and you want them to be okay through the pandemic in the midst of so much uncertainty, so much chaos. You just want them to be okay, and that manifests itself in action. And even anxiety, that's love. And Jesus was demonstrating that. Now, to experience renewal begins with being a part of the people of God. But church and friends, to experience renewal in the way that Jesus just demonstrated to his disciples, it calls for you to be in a smaller group of people. Jesus had 12. He kicked out one. And he said, no, you don't need this. These 11 need this. You can attend this congregation and service. This is the first step of our discipleship pathway. But if you're not part of a group at all, you're not going to experience this. And even if you're part of a group, you may not experience this. We're all a work in progress, but we know more and more if renewal comes through the people of God, then the people of God need to belong to the family of God, and the family of God breaks down into much smaller numbers of people that are going to walk with each other, that are going to strive with each other, that are going to pray for each other, and they're going to wash each other's feet, buy each other food, and see each other's children grow up Lord willing. You need to be a part of the family of God, not just attend and be a part of the people of God. So are you a part of the family of God? in a tangible way, where there's interpersonal burden and commitment and responsibilities, which, yes, is a priority that you have to make and set aside time for, but renewal continues and manifests itself in action in the family of God. Pastor Hanley shared about joining a group. We talk about that every week, actually, but that's why. It's not so that you could have something else to do or another thing to attend. It's because you're not even going to come close to experiencing this without being in a smaller group of people for which 
the defining feature is your willingness to simply be in that group. People come and go, but you don't belong until you're in a group. Jesus' disciples knew they belonged. Jesus' disciples knew they were supposed to be there. There was all kinds of craziness all around them. But these 11 knew they were Christ's. They needed to be there. And they were there for each other. That is why we have groups in our church. Because renewal works itself out in tangible ways in a group. Finally, the second part of this prayer is so that people would know. What would people know? They would know about Jesus and why he came and why he was sent. But on this side of the resurrection, what do we want people to know? We want them to know that in Christ alone, my hope is found. That nothing could separate us from the love of God because of the death and resurrection of Christ. That if you repent and believe that you will be saved and that the love of God will grow you and conform you to the image of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit as his people. Not just you, as his people. There needs to be an outward-facing direction of the people of God. Jesus said this so many times in these six short verses. Verse 21, so the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Verse 25, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you have sent me. And the implication is they're going to tell the world all about this and about me and about my people and about my love. This short little prayer is all about going out, 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 out to a world that does not know Christ. And if it's all about our preferences and comforts, so be it. But it's not about that because it is about eternal separation from their God and an existential loneliness through this earthly life. People seeking love apart from the love of God will never experience an eternal love that changes you forever. And if you are a Christian today, not only can you say you believe it, you can live as if you felt it and that you care about it and that it means something to you that others do too. This is why the church needs to go out. It's not because we have budget. It's not because we have ideas. It's not because we have this beautiful campus and you can't avoid driving by this block without seeing our church. We need to go out because that's why Christ saved his people, to go out, to reconcile a broken and sinful world to himself. So renewal is sustained by the mission of God. So simply this, not that you're going to all of a sudden change everything you do, not that everyone's going to join our community outreaches and ministries, and there are great ones, by the way, that are coming up. Children's basketball is one. Awana is very outreaching. Everything that we're trying to do with group finders and ministry finders, it enables us as a church to be a part of these ministries and commit to people that would then allow the gospel to go out 
and the love of God to be experienced and radiating out from these four walls. But it needs to begin with this. It needs to begin with the love of God. How much do you know, experience, and believe in the earth-shattering perfect love of God for you in Christ that you take and hold for yourself and you just can't wait to share with other people because they need to know this too. It actually begins with letting the love of God overwhelm you. I don't deserve this. But he loved. And he sent his son. And his son loves me. And the Holy Spirit reminds me of that. I got to tell somebody. But it's not just telling somebody. It's I got to show somebody. And that's where the church comes in. That's where your groups become next steps for people to come in. That's where ministries become filled with people that are just wanting, you know, me, me, me. I want to show people God's love because how can I hold it in? It begins and ends with the love of God. You can even see that's what Jesus was saying and praying and holding to. It's the love of God that allows him to glorify the Father and to pray for unity and to call his disciples to show that love to others. So the big idea for today is this. Renewal-driven by the glory of God is experienced in a local church where the people of God are united in love and mission. And you know what, church? We're just getting started. We stand on the shoulders of so much of God's faithfulness in the proclamation of the gospel and the raising of disciple makers, in the generations that are committed to each other, but we're just getting started because God's love unifies, is perfect, is supernatural, and it brings true transformative renewal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for today, and we're so grateful that even in Jesus's teaching and prayer and his examples, his demonstrations, that it comes from the heart of a father, one of love that you demonstrated to the son of not wanting to leave his people as orphans. So God, as he came to us to show us your love, he sends us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to show the world that love. And I pray, God, that you would call us to just revel and just to reflect and just to be filled with that supernatural and perfect and unifying love, that and then it would take root and bear fruit in this church that would be experienced then and practiced in our groups, and that would also be a testimony to a world that is seeking love, but often in the wrong places. May we be that refuge where the gospel is proclaimed and the love of Christ is demonstrated. Thank you, Jesus, for being the head of this church. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us so much. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.